Chapter 3 of Romans, verses 1 and 2 says this, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. So we've been working our way through. We took a break last week. And now let's remind ourselves of what we've been doing here. The larger context of what Paul has been saying, we have to consider it as we approach chapter 3. It's what verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 declared to us, that the Apostle Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, he's very proud of it. He finds it a privilege to share. And he's proud of it because of what it does in the life of all those who believe and for all those who might believe and because of what it did in his own life. And he remembers those things constantly, constantly reminding himself of what Jesus has done for him. Remember, it's suggested that he was writing in Lytotus, if I'm saying that, if I could say it that way, that ironic understatement in which an affirmative is expressed by a negative of its contrary. Remember we spoke about that when we first began this book. It would be like saying, you won't be sorry, meaning you'll be glad. And so he's teaching in that style in that verse. So what Paul really means is, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In other words, I'm very proud of it. I'm proud of being a preacher of it. I'm grateful. I find it a privilege, and I want to share it with everybody that I can. To the Jew, it was given first. Then to the Gentile, as it was described, it would go. Now the gospel, why is it important? Because it's the power of God unto salvation. It's the power of God unto salvation. That's amazing. That's His power. So that others might come to know Him. Because God's righteous judgment, as we have been talking about over and over, is against how many people? All people. He went on to to describe from verse 18 of chapter 1 about the Gentile through 32. Then he went on about the Jew and their false securities. I mean, back in chapter 1, but chapter 2, then he went on to the Jew and their false securities. And that everybody's been all under condemnation. So having circumcision in the law makes no difference from the standpoint of salvation. Makes no difference. But it makes all the difference from the standpoint of judgment. Because with more light comes more judgment. We're responsible for more if we don't handle it correctly. So the Apostle Paul cares deeply for those who do not know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. And it's because of judgment that he has this sense of urgency all of the time. And the answer is so simple, and so much joy is in it. But repentance must come first. That's what he's doing. Repent. Let me show you that we're all condemned. And then, as we continue on now, as we're moving forward, we're going to get to that place where he's talking about Jesus Christ and salvation. But we're not there yet. Repentance first. So today we're going to look at a couple of things. The divisions and the sections of chapter 3, how they're kind of commonly divided, how we might approach it. Obviously that can change as we move week to week. 
But then we're also going to look at the advantage and the privilege of the Jew found in these verses and what it's talking about. And not only their advantage, but what advantage do we have as Christ followers, as born-again Christians? So here we are now at the trailhead of chapter 3, a chapter that has in one of its sections what's been called the most difficult passages, not only in the epistle to the Romans, but in the whole of Scripture. Think about that. Now, it's been said about this chapter, but it's also been said about chapter 4 of Romans, chapter 5. I mean, you go on and on. The book of Romans is a complicated book to understand, which is why we're just taking it in bits and pieces. Because I don't know about you, but taking it as a whole, it's hard to swallow. It's hard to understand. So we have to untwist it and unwind it a little bit for ourselves so that we get what he's saying here. It would seem that those who first divided up the scriptures into chapters and verses got this one right. Because now we're taking up a slightly different point. The Apostle Paul has broken things down, and now he's getting to another point. So this chapter is generally broken down into three parts or sections. The first is verses 1 through 8, where the Apostle Paul addresses some very difficult questions. And I think it's appropriate because a lot of times people think that pastors and teachers and of God's Word try to avoid difficult questions. But the Apostle Paul doesn't avoid them. He wants to get to the root of them. He wants to answer them so that there's no excuse, so that you have the full counsel. And so we're going to do the same. So verses 1 through 8, but what we're going to do is split that up. And we'll look at verses 1 and 2, then we can get on to the rest of that first section. So these kinds of questions that would naturally follow what Paul has been claiming, they begin to lead the mind down a certain road, and then the Jew begins to come up with these questions. So that's what he's going to address in this first section, verses 1 through 8. The second division is from verses 9 through 20, where then Paul wrangles all these Old Testament scriptures to show that what he is saying to them is not his opinion. They're actually God's word, the word that they had, and that the whole world is guilty. And then the third section is when we come up for for air, as it were, because we've been chasing a rainbow through very dark clouds, but we're going to see the light soon. It's where Paul brings his argument full circle all the way back from chapter 1, verse 17. This amazing doctrine of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. That's where he's leading to. And the rest of the book begins to share all of that, which is amazing. So one of the greatest chapters of the entire Bible with respect to the doctrine of atonement. That's what he's getting to. And from the standpoint of doctrine, it's been said of the last division or the section that there is no chapter in the whole Bible which is more vital than this particular one. Repentance. Why? For atonement. Atonement how? Through Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That's where he's headed. And I'm excited to get there, but we have to go through these things first. I want to jump over there, but i got to pull myself back. So in these verses here, the Apostle Paul takes up several different questions here. 
What's the first one? It says, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what's the profit of the circumcision? So the Apostle Paul takes this up. The first one is found here, verses 1 and 2. We'll be focusing on today, and these were questions that the Jewish mind would naturally ask as a result of the argument Paul was putting forth. And so he anticipates them, and then he addresses them. It's like he's saying, okay, now I know where you're headed, and I'm going to talk about that too. I've led you to this point, and now we're going to hit home. And this has been his style throughout the letter. Remember, he's not standing up on a pulpit teaching people. He's in a room having this all written out, and he's pretending there's an argument going on, writing this letter to the church. So Paul does this by reminding them of their privilege, mainly one privilege. You had the Word of God. You've had the oracles, he says. We remember then from verses 18 in chapter 1 up to this point, it's been talking about the righteous judgment of God, that the Jew is guilty as the Gentile. And in the argument, all of their hiding places have been stripped away. Laws of no value, uh, circumcisions of no value. All of these things he's been breaking down, and Paul unravels all their false securities, obliterates everything that they relied upon. So the Jew now is left standing there just as naked as the Gentiles stood there in verse in chapter 1, right beside each other, wondering, okay, so what's the point? What's the point of being the chosen people? And so he puts up these difficult questions to deal with them. He knows they're coming as if there's an objector standing next to him yelling, hey, Paul, what are you saying, man, that there's no advantage to being a Jew in God's eyes? Weren't the promises to us? Weren't we the chosen people given special privileges? If we're as guilty as the Gentile heathens and sinners, then why make our race at all? What kind of wicked game is this that's being played with our lives? Have you ever thought about that? Why would God do this? Why would God allow that? I don't have the answers. He's sovereign. I don't have those answers. Those are for the question box when we get to heaven. But we're going to know everything when we get there. That's what the Bible tells us. Paul, this argument of yours in chapter 2 must surely be wrong because it seems to be leading to the inevitable conclusion that you can wipe out the Old Testament because there's no point in having it at all. This is what they're concluding. So what advantage do we have in our nationality or in the sign of circumcision then? Like, what's the point? The word advantage here is the word being the word meaning overplus. Not a word that we would use, but it had some emphasis to it, meaning going beyond what is usual. So what's the overplus? What's the surplus? What do we have more than anybody else has? Why did God give it to us? What's the point of it all? Well, in the world's eyes, not much. We went through all of that. How the Jew was living at that time. You remember the last few messages that we talked about? But think about this even more. They had such a tragic history up to this point. Think about it. John MacArthur writes, One is not inclined to think there has been any advantage in being a Jew, in spite of the reality that they are such a noble strain of humanity and chosen by God, their history has been a saga of slavery, 
hardship, warfare, persecution, slander, captivity, dispersion, and humiliation. Think about it. They were lowly slaves for over 400 years in Egypt with burdens put on them that seemed impossible to meet. Immediately after this, God rescues them, takes them out to the desert, and then makes them wander for 40 years. When they eventually made it into the promised land, they had to fight for every square inch of the land and continue to fight to maintain and protect it. After hundreds of years of that, there was civil war. The kingdom splits in two. Then the northern kingdom, almost destroyed by Assyria, there's a remnant there being taken captive and then deported. And then later on, the southern kingdom was conquered and taken into Babylon for 70 years. Some eventually made it back and then what happened then? The tyrannical Antiochus Epiphanes, who, whose rise to the throne was controversial. He was said to be a usurper of authority. He stole the kingdom. He stole that right. And he desecrated their temple. He corrupted the sacrifices. He slaughtered the priests. He persecuted the Jews of Judea and Samaria. And then under Roman rule, it was just as bad. Tens of thousands of those called Jewish rebels were publicly crucified. Under Herod the Great, you remember him? Many Jewish babies were murdered. Why? Because of his jealousy for Jesus Christ being born. He didn't want any other king. And in the year AD 70, you remember what happened there? That Roman general Titus Vespasian was given the order by Caesar to completely destroy Jerusalem and the temple and almost everyone in it. And according to Josephus, over a million Jews of all ages were mercilessly butchered. Some, and some 100,000 of those who survived were sold into slavery or sent to Rome to die in the gladiator games. Two years previously, Gentiles in Caesarea had killed 20,000 Jews and sold many into slavery. And during that same period of time, the inhabitants of Damascus cut the throats of 10,000 Jews in one single day. And we can go on and on throughout their history. I mean, even after this, the Jews of Cyrene, Egypt, Cyprus, Mesopotamia, who rebelled against Rome in AD 115, they failed. And as a result, the emperor Hadrian destroyed 985 towns in Palestine and was said to kill at least 600,000 Jewish men. So historically, the Jews celebrated very little social or political security. Who would want to be part of that? So Paul has just proved through Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, that there was no guarantee of security. In fact, look back at your history. There's no security in all of that. I mean, we could prove it just by what we read. We think about that in other nations, even in our nation. We've had civil wars. We've had all of these types of things. So there's no security in any of that. The Abrahamic covenant, circumcision, having the law does not save you. It did not save them. What should have been a blessing to them was actually bringing judgment because there was no obedience. They were living 
as if they were untouchable. I've got circumcision, I've got the law, I'm good, nothing else I need to do. doesn't matter how my life is lived. I don't have to be a representative. That is where they were, complacent, no outreach, no compassion for others. See, they weren't devout in heart. It wasn't inward. It was outward only. So the Jew is left standing there, now coming back as we come back to the argument. This argument of yours, Paul, in chapter 2 has to be wrong. It's leading to the conclusion that the Old Testament has no point. And Paul replies, what I have been saying is not that a Jew had no advantage over the Gentile. I have never said that at all. In fact, he could go on to say, I've already agreed that the Jew has a great advantage. In fact, look back at the argument stated in chapter 2, verse 25, as I already said, the law is profitable if you keep it. If you keep, but you have to keep the whole law. You can't just keep one. You break one, you break them all. This is a positive statement that if the law is kept, there is great advantage, but nobody can keep it completely and perfectly. And so his point is, we're all in universal sin. That's what he's breaking them down. So the law does not profit in and of itself. It's not some type of magical spell. Here you go. You're okay now. That's not what it is. I can't carry my Bible. It's like carrying your Bible and thinking you're a Christian just because you carry it. It's the same concept. Even today, we can trust in our traditions. The mere fact that a man is circumcised does not save him any more than the fact that a child is sprinkling, sprinkled at their christening saves them, or that an adult is immersed at his baptism saves him. There's no transmissible grace in a sacrament. There's no transmissible grace. In other words, eternal grace cannot be extended through a tradition. It can't. There's no way. And we have to absorb this. We have to if we're going to understand where he's headed. So he picks up these difficult questions. He deals with them. Doesn't shy away from them. See, we shouldn't do that either. When there are difficult questions presented to us, we shouldn't shy away. We may not understand. We may not know. And that's okay. If we tell him, hey, you know what? I don't know. I need to look that up. I'll get back to you. There's nothing wrong with that. But to attempt to try to make an argument when you can't is wrong. And I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. That's one thing that held me back a while from stepping out into the pulpit. I knew God was calling me. And I talked to a good friend of mine up north, a pastor. And I said, man, how am I supposed to do this? I don't have all the doctrine, the theology. I don't have it all. And he said, Larry, how many people? He goes, let me tell you something. After service, not many people come up to you and say, you know what? Let me talk to you about Genesis in chapter 13 where God says. No, they come up to you and they say, man, I'm hurting. I lost my job. I'm sick. I have somebody in my family who has cancer, whatever. And he said, don't be afraid of that. Just step out because that's what you're going to find. So good. But see, we have to be able to pick these things up. We have to be able to examine them. Not only that we might teach others, but that we might solidify our faith. That we might know what's true, what's false, handle the accurate. 
So that's what Paul's doing. Paul's answer, the Jew has advantage in every single way possible. You have the oracles of God. That's what he's saying. The very word given to Moses and the prophets. We see in these verses, he uses this word chiefly. As if to say, well, first off, you have God's word. And then we get ready for the Apostle Paul to list these points as a pastor might do. Okay, point one, point two, point three. But he doesn't do that. He says chiefly, a first priority, number one. And then we don't see any other list. Because there's nothing else. You have the total advantage. This is the only point that you need. In other words, you were given the oracles of God to protect and to proclaim. You don't need anything else. This is of first priority. Now the writers here, the interpreters of God's word, the canon here, uh, they use the word oracles. And it's used many times in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it's only used four times. Here, uh, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 38, in Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 12, and in 1 Peter, chapter 4, verse 11. And it's from the root word, logos. And it means divine utterance, a divine revelation. It's a divine statement being made. God's revealed truth in words. It's not just the thought or the idea, it's the statement itself, the truth. Not just the sentiment of what God's saying, but what He actually said. It's what He actually said. In other words, guys, you want to know the advantage that you have? You have God's actual words given to Moses, given to the law and the prophets. That's the only point needed. It's God's word. You have it. Follow it. Be obedient to it. You know, what distinguishes it from every other book is the very fact that it's God's words. They give a true reflection and revelation of God to man and a true revelation of man to himself. That's the importance of them. We get to know and understand who God is as best we can while we're here, and we get to see who we are in comparison to him and how to walk in this life. Even today, we have God's Word, the full revelation of it, and it must be believed from bookend to bookend, from cover to cover. If you believe Genesis 1-1, you must believe through to Revelation 22-21, the whole thing. This is of utmost importance for those of us who are born again. If there is a lack of faith in this, God's Word will have no benefit to your soul. It will have no benefit if there's doubt. They are only a benefit if the truths of it are believed and if they're realized. Unless it's believed, it has no power to help the soul that is rotten to its core. So you could say, and I've heard it many times, well, don't you suppose some of the writers got it wrong? Like it lost some of its truth through time and translation. I mean, couldn't those with fallible minds and deceitful hearts misinterpret God's word? I mean, is it possible? I understand that sentiment. Many throughout time have made the same argument. Satan made the same argument, didn't he? He questions God's word. But see here, if you believe some of it, you have to believe all of it. You can't pick and choose. 
You can't take a little here, take a little there. You see, God's word is held together, isn't it? God's complete word is well balanced. When you read through the entire Bible, and I don't know if you have, but I have. When you read through the Bible, it's well balanced. When you see an argument that's difficult to understand, you remember another scripture that balances it out. And so you have grace and you have judgment combined together. And what a peace that can bring. But if you have more than the other, then you're walking down a dangerous path. You have to be careful. Okay, well, what kind of answer is that? Well, listen, the God that created the heavens and the earth is the same God who preserves His Word. You don't think He can do that? Listen, Genesis 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And we go on through creation. God said it, it was done. Listen to Isaiah 40, 12 through 14. God, man, he's so big. Listen, it says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or has his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Obviously nobody, because he had all of that and he did all of that. When wisdom is speaking of God in Proverbs 8, 27 through 29, it says, When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth. He did all of these things. But Hebrews 1.3 sums it up really nice. It says he upholds all things by the word of his power. The God with the power to do all of this is amazing. You cannot believe all of that while also holding to the belief that men screwed up his words. You can't. You would be saying that God does not have the power to preserve his word. He can, he will, and he does. And this is the first of importance, not only to the Jew then, but also to us as born-again Christians now. And if we don't, God's word that was given to us as a privilege will be grossly mishandled as they mishandled it. And when you mishandle it, it leads to many things. We're going to look at a couple of them. One, an asphyxiated God. And two, an absent God. So let's look at the first one here. An asphyxiated God, or a God that's choked out. A God that's smothered. See, the, the Jews loved the Word of God so much at one point that they placed what they called hedges of protection around it to protect the sanctity of it. Yet those hedges soon became priority. They smothered the Word of God. They replaced it. Jesus described them as the precepts of men, over 600 rules and regulations. 
began to smother God's word and choke him right out of it, where it became man-made traditions. You remember the story in Mark chapter 7, verses 5 through 9. It says that the Pharisees and scribes asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things that you do. They had a certain way of washing, and we went through that when we were teaching through the book of Luke. But you take the Sabbath, for example. They set it up with extremely complex and detailed traditions, so much so that it's been said that they had lists for what kind of knots they could tie on that day. It was said that they couldn't even light a candle on the Sabbath day. Well, some of us today, the true Sabbath is on Saturday. The true Sabbath, you need to worship God on that day or on Sunday. We go through the same things today. In Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, it says this, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he, he was in need and hungry, he and those with him? He went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. I can do whatever I want. I'm the Lord. The Pharisees, think about this. They're following at this time. They're following Jesus and the disciples around. And they're looking for something to accuse him of. Not for him to do something right. They had inspection, but no introspection of their own selves. Jesus and the disciples were being accused of breaking the law of reaping on the Sabbath, which we find in Exodus 34.21, a law that was given to remind the people to rest during the busiest times of the year, which was the harvest season. All it was saying is, don't work during this time. Take a break. Worship me. Even during those extreme times that you think you need to be out there, I need you to take a break still because it's important to worship me. It's important we have that relationship. That's why sometimes we find these companies that close on Sundays. What a blessing. Can you imagine if everything did? Then we'd be mad because we couldn't find anywhere to eat. But Jesus' reply is so good. Don't you remember the story of David and his men? It's found in 1 Samuel 21. Don't you remember that story of David and his men? Whenever you brought King David up, it was like, oh, God's anointed, his chosen. Man, it was that, that's our champion right there against the Gentiles. I mean, that, that would capture their attention. And he's talking to them. He said, they're on the run. They're hungry. And they knew where they could get some food, the showbread. 
And they would understand the significance being on the Sabbath. But it was the bread that was being changed out at that time. Jesus used this action which God did not condemn to show that the Pharisees' narrow interpretation of the law blurred God's intention. The spirit of the law in respect to human need took priority over its ceremonial regulations. It would be like me misquoting a scripture like Acts 6, 2, 4, where it says, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer in the ministry. So if I'm in study and there's an extreme situation that needs my attention, maybe it's at home, and I say, no, no, I can't be bothered right now. The Word says, as a pastor, I need to put myself to prayer and study. That would be wrong. Or if I'm driving and at a stoplight, and say there's a fire truck behind me, or an ambulance, lights and sirens blaring, and I say, no, no, light's red. I can't move. I mean, that's how ridiculous it would be. That's what he's talking about. I move. Why? Because human need supersedes over that regulation. That's why you can't mishandle the Word of God, because it leads to misinterpretation like the Jehovah's Witnesses did. No blood transfusions, because they misquote Scripture, and many people die as a result. Their, their traditions overshadow human need. Was that God's purpose? Is that a God you would want to serve? It's not a God I want to serve. Man-made rules and traditions, misinterpreted laws, smothered God's Word. And God's Word was sopped with tradition. I think about one of my favorite foods, chicken fried steak and eggs with gravy. But if you smother it, all you're going to taste is the gravy, nothing else. It's smothered. God's word was being smothered by their traditions. So he says chiefly, first of all, importance. You have the very word of God, but when mishandled, it can be smothered. You can choke Jesus. You can choke the Lord right out of it and asphyxiated God. And that leads to our second point, an absent God. You see, there were moments in the history of the nation of Israel, those entrusted with God's word, who lost it. Do you remember those stories? They lost God's word. They couldn't find it. They didn't even realize they didn't have it. They didn't even realize it was lost. If God's word is absent, God is therefore absent. How else will he speak? How else will he instruct? You will be left only with your images, opinions, conclusions about a false God. You will think he will be talking to you when it could be a demon or Satan in the form of an angel of light, as the Bible says. There's no better example of this than that of the rule of King Josiah found in 2 Kings 22, 2 Chronicles 34. You remember that story? He's cleaning up the land of Judah, restoring the places of worship. He's doing this reform, Deuteronomic reform it was called. And as they did so, they found the book of the law of Moses as they were cleaning everything up. They found it. Where was it? 
did you know what told Josiah to begin cleaning up? Because he wanted to follow those righteous kings. And by the way, he's in the genealogy of Jesus, isn't he? Where had it been? Where did it go? Why was it not preserved if given to this people? It's like they're saying, I have the law. I'm good. Oh, really? You were a preserver of it all the time? No, look what happened in the past. Look what happened to that. Well, we're not responsible for that. Yeah, but you have it now, and you're not living it out. Same thing with us. How are they to know who their God was if they were not even reading the Scriptures? Who were they serving? Who were they praying to? How did they know how to pray? How did they hear from the Lord? Well, if you read, they were following the dictates of what? Their own hearts. Me and God, we have our own relationship. I know about Jesus Christ. He and I have, we're good. You know, we're, we're tight. No problem. But they were worshiping false gods and false images that they followed. The Bible tells us that in the Old Testament. So here's a people that claimed, we're God's chosen, we're given the law, and many times it's forgotten. And God was absent in their lives. Throughout the Old Testament, Jesus and the cross are depicted. They were to be given out as well. This is one major reason why they missed Him. Not believing the Old Testament Scriptures. It's through these oracles, the fact of the coming Messiah, now here, was given. We see it in Deuteronomy 18.15. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. These are Messianic scriptures. And then all the way back in Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between, from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Proclaiming the Messiah. To us today, the scriptures are completely fulfilled. We have the most light. We have all of it, Old and New Testament. The authorized version, the 66 books that make it up, and we talked about how those were designed at one point. Yet if we study it all, if we study at all, it's simply to try sometimes to prove a point. We take bits and pieces out of it. We use it in an attempt to justify the lifestyle we want to live. This is called the Isa Jesus, reading into it. It's not J-E-S-U-S, -S, by the way. This is the art of Bible reading, of Bible deciphering, of being instructed in it, we need to have the exegesis, letting it come out and speak to us and change our lives. But we want to use it in an attempt to justify the lifestyle we want to live. We take bits and pieces of it like a puzzle, but it's a puzzle we lay out and all kinds of pieces are missing. But because we don't want to see those pieces, that we don't want to live. And sometimes we push pieces into place that they shouldn't be there. That's an incomplete puzzle. We need the whole counsel of God. How many people do you know that claim Christianity 
yet rarely pick up their Bibles. And by the way, is that what saves you? No, it's not what saves you. But if you're born again, you're going to want to know what the Lord's telling you. You're going to want to know what He's speaking to you about. Because does He speak to you audibly all the time? No, we have to be careful because those could be incorrect spirits. It has to match up with what the Word of God says. I may know the most popular scriptures, but that's not going to help me in the deep, dark times. We have to know all of it. I have discovered that those people that claim that, that take bits and pieces out, I've discovered that many times they're the ones with the most opinions about God. Well, me and God, we're like this. And I know the Bible says that... uh, I'm to work out my own salvation, so don't bother me with what you want to teach. You know, I can live this lifestyle when the Bible says you can't. And so you must question and examine. They become the most defensive people. In their lives, God's word has been choked out by their own interpretation, their own understanding, their own traditions. And you have to sit back and wonder, are they born again? Are they born again? I don't know. That's between them and the Lord. But you're only going to know if you read through God's Word. There's no other way. You can't sit all day in a basement or an attic and think that God's talking to you all day. Well, I don't need to go to church. I don't need... This is where we discover what the Lord's telling us. This is where we get together and we... Worship together the Lord. This is where we get together and we sharpen each other and we encourage each other. No, I don't need any of that. Me and God, we have our own thing going. I don't believe it. God is absent. There's, when God is absent, there's no true freedom. What advantage is there if you have all of God's true words like we do, all the light, yet no true faith in what He has said or what He preserved? Well, I believe this piece But I can't believe that piece. Why would God do that? Why would He say that? Well, there's a reason. Have you examined it? Well, all these guys got it wrong. Or some of them got it wrong. Well, stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants. Of men in the past who have prayed, who've examined these things, and read what they said in their commentaries. Good men of the faith. You can't say, well, I understand. God's telling me something different. No, there's no new revelation. The Bible says that. No new revelation. There's nothing new under the sun. So we discover what He's actually saying rather than making up what we want it to say. We have to be careful. All the light's been given. He's preserved it throughout history, and He will continue to do it. To the Jew, the law was a great advantage if it was kept. To the Christian, to the born-again Christian, having a Bible doesn't save us. Faith in the one it proclaims saves. And how are we going to know if we don't proclaim it, if we don't read it? How are we to know its truth in its entirety if we never pick it up? And so we have to ask ourselves, is it mishandled? Is it lost? Have we done the same thing as the Jew has? Has the Bible been up on the shelf and we clean it off, clean all that dust off, blow it off, you know? That's what was happening with them. 
These are the points. This is what you guys have. You have the very words of God. And what a privilege we have. We have the very words of God right in front of us. Let's all stand.